Well, Pastor Tom got us off to a great start on our new sermon series last Sunday. We are thinking this spring about how to live every day of our lives on mission, even the ordinary days of our lives. Uh, Tom spoke about living on mission in our neighborhoods. If you missed that message, if you were on vacation or something, I encourage you to go back and, and give a listen as it gives us a great start for this, uh, that series. As it happened last week, Karen and I were out in Denver visiting a couple of our, two of our sons, and uh, so we worship with one of them at one of their churches on Sunday, and it happened to be a video campus, so I had a chance to be on the other side of the screen for a change. And I can tell you, it all works. I mean, it was just a great experience. Um, worship was wonderful. The campus pastor did a great job. When I opened my eyes after praying for the offering, there was the teaching pastor on the big screen, high def, which worked well for him because he was annoyingly hip and handsome, I'll have to say. <laughs> but he was also a good teacher, powerful, inspiring message, and I went home feeling filled up and inspired. Um, so trust that's the experience in uh, Wilmington and Watertown and East Lexington and the Courtyard and all the other places, grateful for this ministry. Um, I may not be hip and handsome, but I'm way authentic, okay? <laughs> so that's, we got that going. So... Uh, next Sunday, we'll continue our Everyday Matters series, but we're actually going to take a little bit of a break from that this morning. We'd like to take some time and uh, continue a conversation that we're having here at Grace this spring about women in leadership in the life of our church. Now, if you've been around Grace for any length of time, you know that women serve in a variety of capacities here as pastors, teachers, preachers, team leaders, even ordained ministers of the gospel. We just heard about Pastor Cynthia's effective ministry over decades here at Grace, and we're grateful for that. Uh, under our current constitution, though, women are not able to serve as elders at Grace. And so the elders are bringing forward a proposal to the congregation that we amend that clause in our constitution to allow women to serve as elders here at Grace. So we're taking some time to consider that question this spring, and Lord willing, if the congregation is ready to vote on it at our annual meeting in June. So we produce some documents that kind of lay out the, uh, our thinking on the matter. You can get them online or at the information desk. We've had some meetings along the way for folks to ask questions and uh, those sorts of things. And today is the first of a two-part sermon series on the subject. We'll do part one today and part two a month from now on June 1st uh, to kind of lay out the issue. So what I'd like to do today is simply present the two dominant views on women in leadership in the church today. Uh, we recognize this is a disputable matter in the church, that thoughtful, Bible-believing, Christ-following people understand the Scripture differently on this particular issue. And so we'd like to understand how people are processing this, the two dominant views, so that you have a chance to think them through for yourselves and be able to make a decision thoughtfully, prayerfully, intelligently uh, later on this spring. So the elders obviously have a point of view on this particular matter, uh, uh, along with me. Uh, but uh, for this morning, I'm going to try to just take a nonpartisan approach and just give an even-handed presentation of these two points of view um, so that uh, you can understand them a little bit better. So before we jump into that, I'd like to frame this conversation in some familiar words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. He writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This passage is reminding us that we are members of a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are sons and daughters of a heavenly Father. And healthy families aren't afraid of hard conversations. Healthy families talk things through. They hear each other out. They understand each other. And then they work towards a conclusion that they can all agree on. And notice the tone with which these conversations take place. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. Those are the qualities we hope will characterize our conversation as we move towards this decision. Notice the goal of these conversations, unity. Not uniformity in which everyone agrees on everything. It's easy to get along when you all think the same. But unity is oneness with diversity. And that unity is achieved by focusing on the things we have in common, those core essential beliefs. We've been singing about them this morning, and they're here in the Scriptures. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one spirit, one body. So healthy families don't quit on each other when they have differences. They talk them through together. Then they remind themselves that what they have in common is far stronger and more valuable than their differences. And they gather and unite around those commonalities. So that's what we'd like to do with this particular question. We'd like to hear each other, stretch each other's thinking a little bit, and then work together towards a decision. We are a congregationally governed church. And so this decision will have to be made by a majority of the congregation. In fact, a super majority, two-thirds of the congregation, will need to be in favor of this for the amendment to be made. So we trust that as we work our way through this conversation and on the other side of the decision, that each of us and all of us will make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So with that spirit, let me walk you through a survey of these two points of view. We'll kind of compare and contrast them, offer some definitions, and then some biblical support for each of them. We're going to move really quickly and cover a lot of ground. So I will let you know everything we put on the screens this morning will be available on the website tomorrow or in a hard copy next Sunday. So don't feel like you have to write furiously to keep up. I'd rather just kind of have you get the flow of the conversation. So, two perspectives that are common in the church today, and they are known as the complementarian and egalitarian points of view. Now, those names are a bit cumbersome, they are inadequate, and at times they are misleading, but they're the only terms we've got that kind of people have rallied around. So, we'll work with them this morning, complementarian and egalitarian. And very simply, complementarianism teaches that men and women are created equal, but are called to distinct and complementary roles in the church and the home, with women in voluntary submission to the servant leadership of men. It's important to notice that women are not considered inferior to men or subservient to men, and that women are expected to enter into conversation and decision-making. But in God's divine order, as complementarians understand it, Men are to exercise ultimate authority in the church and in the home. 
Egalitarianism teaches that men and women are equal not only in creation, but in calling, and are free to exercise their God-given gifts in the church or the home in any role for which they are called and qualified in a spirit of mutual respect and submission. So notice here, men and women are still distinct in gender, and those differences are important, but that respect and submission flow both ways. Now, I do want to point out that for our conversation, we are focusing on church life and not home life in particular. Now, most people will land in one camp or another and apply those principles at home or at church, um, but the elders are not making recommendations about how you order things at home. Husbands, wives, do that on your own time, okay? This is just about the church. So those are the formal definitions, but what does it look like practically? How do these things play out in the life of a local church? Well, in a complementarian environment, women are free to teach and lead women and children, but are restricted from authoritative teaching and leadership roles over men. Now, how this principle is applied can vary a lot from church to church. In some complementarian churches, a woman would never be allowed to preach from the pulpit, would never teach a class or a Bible study that included men, and would not lead a team if it included men. In some other, more moderate, complementarian environments, women can teach or lead sometimes if they're under the covering or the umbrella of authority of a husband or a leader in the church, something like that. But in a complementarian environment, senior leadership and teaching roles, elder, senior pastor, teaching pastor, those would be available to men only. In an egalitarian environment, both men and women are free to serve in any capacity for which they are called and qualified, including senior teaching and leadership roles. Now, this is obviously simpler to explain and apply. Men and women can serve freely in any capacity. But notice, that's still important for those men and women to be qualified by character, gifting, and training to fulfill that particular role. Now, I also want to point out that the proposal the elders are bringing is simply allowing women to serve as elders at Grace. We're not addressing the senior pastor question. That's a separate question, would be considered at a separate time. So those are the two points of view as they're defined and practiced. But let's look now at the biblical support for each of them because both of these views ground their thinking in the Scriptures. So let me briefly and quickly walk you through a survey of key texts here. Now, in a couple weeks or in a month, in part two of the sermon, we'll come back and we'll look at some of these in more depth. I just want you to get a feeling for them this morning. Both points of view begin with creation and ground their thinking uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. Complementarians tend to focus on Genesis chapter 2. And we read, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Now, complementarians, looking at this text, would point out that Adam was created first, that Eve was formed from Adam, and that Eve was called a helper to Adam. And so they would argue that this is presenting a divine ordering, a divine hierarchy in which men are an ultimate authority over women in the church and in the home. 
egalitarians tend to focus on Genesis chapter 1. And we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So egalitarians would point out that both men and women reflect the divine image and both men and women share equally in the divine mandate to rule over creation. And then they would point out that there's no hierarchy in Genesis 1 or chapter 2 that's explicitly stated in the text. So they wouldn't see any order in the significance of, of creation. They would say the significance is that both of them are given that divine mandate. They would also point out that the word helper is often used in the Scripture to describe God Himself. So it's not a word that implies subservience. So we could go point and counterpoint on Genesis 1 and 2, uh, but we'll save that for another time. Well, both perspectives then look at the fall of humanity recorded in Genesis chapter 3. But each of them emphasized different aspects of it. Complementarians would point out that Eve was the one who was deceived, and that Adam followed her lead. In other words, if, if Adam had faithfully exercised his leadership role, and if Eve had faithfully exercised her following role, then there might have been a different outcome here. Egalitarians would point out that both Adam and Eve were deceived. In fact, the text would suggest that both of them were there at the time. And that Eve was simply not qualified to lead in this instance, because she had not received the instructions directly from the Lord. As Genesis tells us, Adam had received that. So Eve wasn't deceived because she was a woman, she w or wasn't qualified because she was a woman, she wasn't qualified because she had not been instructed as Adam had. So then plowing ahead through the Old Testament, we find a variety of examples of women in some leadership roles. So how do we understand them? People like uh, Miriam the prophetess, Deborah, the judge, Esther, the queen, and some others. Well, complementarians would argue that these women are exceptions that prove the rule. In other words, the fact that there are so few women in leadership in the Old Testament reveals the fact that God's intention was that men would do the senior leading and teaching and that these women rose up simply because the men didn't show up in those instances. Egalitarians would argue that these women are the exceptions that prove there is no rule. That if it's, if, God, if it's against God's character and will for women to lead, he certainly would have, wouldn't have raised women up to lead and blessed them. He certainly was capable of raising up men if that was his will. Well, plowing ahead, we come to the New Testament. And once again, we find that in the life of Jesus, women play some pretty significant roles. And both complementarians and egalitarians would agree that Jesus was ministering in a strongly patriarchal culture and that his affirmation of women, his inclusion of women was revolutionary for its time. But how do we understand his actions here? Well, complementarians would point out that Jesus intentionally stopped short of naming a woman as one of the 12 disciples. And he did that intentionally to indicate that those leadership roles were for men. They point out that he wasn't afraid to raise a ruckus about other things. He certainly could have raised one about this. Egalitarians would argue that Jesus stretched the culture as much as it would bear. 
that in that culture, to make women a part of his intimate band of traveling disciples would have been unacceptable morally as well as culturally. And so Jesus did everything else he could to advance women by inviting them to follow him, allowing them to assist him in ministry, and be the first witnesses of his resurrection. Egalitarians would also point out that Jesus didn't choose any Gentiles to be part of the Twelve, but certainly later on they would figure into the leadership of the church. Continuing in the New Testament, we come to the days of the early church, and once again we find women in some significant teaching and leading roles. So how do we understand these? Complementarians would again point out that there are no examples of or instructions for women to serve as elders in the life of the church. And that's true. There's no example, there's no affirmation of that explicitly. And they would say that teaching roles in the church, that these were primarily informal and remedial kind of roles rather than uh, authoritative kinds of roles. Egalitarians would argue that uh, the culture simply would not bear a woman serving as an elder in that environment. Just as the culture of the day would not tolerate the abolition of slavery. And so Paul doesn't call for the abolition of slavery. He simply lays down principles that will lead to its abolition down the road. And they would say, egalitarians would say he takes the same approach on women in leadership. They would also point out that these women did, in fact, fill formative roles in the life of the church. Lydia was the first believer in Philippi and helped to found that new church. Priscilla was a teacher who corrected the doctrine of Apollos, the preacher. And Phoebe is identified by the Apostle Paul as a deacon of the church. Well, let's look for a minute at a couple of key texts that figure into this conversation. The first is Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, complementarians would interpret this verse to mean that all believers share equally in the blessings of salvation. That's simply what it means. Egalitarians would say this verse has much broader implications and in fact abolishes any distinction in the body of Christ based on race, social status, or gender. Moving ahead into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a very extended passage. I'll just read a couple of verses. Paul says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So complementarians would read here an affirmation of that divine order in which men have authority over women. Egalitarians would argue that the passage should not be translated men-women, but husbands-wives. It's the very same words that are translated husband and wives in other places in the Scripture, and that's what Paul's talking about here in terms of headship. They would also focus on the fact that both men and women are free to pray and prophesy in the public worship services of the church. The most challenging text of all, most important probably, is 1 Timothy chapter 2, in which Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. He then goes on to point out that Adam was, uh, was formed first and that Eve was the one who was deceived. 
Now, this is such an important text, we're going to come back to it in a month and spend a little more time with it. But just a quick observation. Complementarians would understand here that there's a universal prohibition against women serving in teaching or leadership roles over men. And that women are not qualified for those roles by virtue of their gender. Egalitarians would read this as a situational prohibition. That Paul's speaking to a specific church at a specific time, spa facing specific issues, namely false teaching. And that the simple universal principle is that unqualified people should not teach or have authority. And they would argue that Eve wasn't deceived because she was a woman, as all, all women are easily deceived, but because she had not been instructed directly from the Lord as Adam had. And then finally, we come to Paul's instructions about elders in 1 Timothy. He says, Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. Complementarians would argue that Paul is requiring that elders should be men. Egalitarians would say that Paul is simply speaking to a culture in which there was no such thing as a man elder. He's assuming they'll be men just like he's assuming they'll be married, but we certainly don't require elders to be married in the church today. Egalitarians would say that the application of this text is simply that elders should be faithful spouses and monogamous people. So there you have it. 10,000 pages of reading I just saved you uh, in the past 15 minutes of surveying the scriptures. There's all kinds of stuff written on this, obviously. Much, much more that could be said, and if you want to plow deeper, please go ahead. We'll come back in a month and look at a couple of these uh, more intriguing ones a little more carefully. But as we finish up, let's call ourselves back to our opening words from the Apostle Paul a call to unity in the body of Christ. A unity that's grounded in our core beliefs. Because as important as this issue is, as polarizing as it can be, what we have in common is far stronger and more valuable than our differences, even on this issue. Let me just point out quickly what we have in common even on this issue. First of all, we, we all believe that the Bible is our final and infallible authority in all matters. Both positions are based on a thorough, thoughtful, responsible exposition of God's Word. There are well-known, highly regarded pastors, theologians, and Bible teachers on both sides of this argument. So we may disagree with each other in the body of Christ on this particular issue, but please, please, let's not accuse each other of being unbiblical. That's just unfair. It's not accurate. It's judgmental. We all believe in the authority of Scripture, not culture and not tradition, but Scripture. Secondly, both perspectives believe that men and women are equal. Complementarians are not saying that women are inferior or subservient. They're simply emphasizing distinctive roles. And we all believe that men and women are complementary. Egalitarians are not trying to abolish the differences between the sexes. Those differences are important and to be valued. In fact, egalitarians would say that's why we need both men and women at the leadership table to present the full picture. 
So the, the terms are misleading because complementarians believe that men and women are equal and egalitarians believe that men and women are complementary. But that's just the way it is. <laughs> Finally, both camps believe that the church needs men and women to exercise their God-given gifts to build up the body and advance God's work in this world. But that's how Paul finishes out this section in Ephesians 4. He says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, so that the body of Christ may be built up as each part does its work. The church desperately needs men and women to exercise their God-given gifts, to build the body and advance God's work in this world. Grace Chapel desperately needs men and women to exercise their God-given gifts to fulfill the mission that God has put on our hearts. And so at this point, I'm going to break from my nonpartisanship for a moment and just share a little bit of my heart on this particular matter. Notice that there's nothing in this passage that suggests gender restrictions on ministry. I think we'd all agree that in verse 7, when Paul says, to each one of us grace has been given, he's speaking to both men and women. I think we'd all agree with that. I think we'd all agree that in verse 16, when he says, each part does its work, he's talking about both men and women. I think we'd all agree on that. So how can we say that verse 11, right in the middle of this passage, when he talks about pastors and teachers and evangelists and pastors, that suddenly in that verse, he's only talking to men. There's nothing in the text to indicate that. In fact, the very point of the passage is that the whole church, every member of the body, needs to exercise their gifts to build up the body. And so, friends, that is why the elders are bringing this proposal before you. We simply believe the Bible not only allows but calls women and men to exercise their gifts in any capacity for which they are called, gifted, and qualified. We believe that the church, this church, desperately needs the leadership of men and women to fulfill our mission. And we believe the congregation should make this decision. And so we're asking that we might consider this question thoughtfully, prayerfully, respectfully, allow the congregation to make a decision, and then we can move forward together. And as we do that, we want to remind ourselves that what we have in common is far stronger and more valuable than our differences. Let's not allow this or any disputable matter to divide us, distract us, or deter us from the good, good work that God is calling us to do. Most of us are familiar with Park Street Church here in Boston. For a long, long time, Park Street Church has been the bastion of conservative evangelical orthodoxy uh, in, in all of New England, really. Well, they made this transition to women serving as elders quite a few years ago. It was a challenging season, but they are happily on the other side of that, and they're doing great work for the kingdom. I think we'd all agree. Listen to something that Pastor Gordon Hugenberger wrote about this matter in the church. He said, It is my conviction that there is no excuse for Christians to disfellowship one another, to become embittered against each other, or to separate over the issue of gender roles. May the Lord help us always to major in the majors. 
And so whatever our particular point of view may be on this subject, however passionate we may be about it, whatever the outcome of this decision may be, I'm praying that we will continue to be one in Christ, one on mission, one people all together, answering God's call on our lives, doing this work in his world, that we will do everything we can to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so I'm grateful that as we wrap up this discussion this morning, we can finish around the communion table because the communion table reminds us of what we have in common, of what defines us. So let's pray for a moment before we come to the table. We thank you, Lord, for a few moments this morning to think together about a challenging issue. Thank you for the freedom we have in Christ to do that. Thank you for the love we have for one another, the grace we have received and are able to show to one another because of your Spirit's work in our hearts. Thank you for the oneness that you have created here in this congregation and sustained over many, many decades and through many, many decisions. So we'll trust you to lead us forward on this one as well. Guide our thoughts and our prayers and conversations over these next several weeks. And in the meantime, Lord, we pray you would keep us focused on that which is of supreme importance to us, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.